attended the movie club on Friday. Movie club. There are a couple of you. Who have you seen the movie Sophie Scholl? Uh, I, I think the, the, the German pronunciation is Scholl. Am I right? There we go. Okay. Sophie Scholl. And it's a, it's a wonderful movie. I actually thought it won the Oscar for Best Foreign Movie, but it was made in the same year as Tsotsi. So South Africa won the, the Best Foreign Film. But it is a wonderful movie. And in our reflection, we asked ourselves the question, how is it possible for a 21-year-old girl to, to have such moral clarity, to think so clearly about what God requires of her? that she is willing, spoiler alert, to go to her death for, for that truth. And one of the conclusions that we came to is that she must have been part of a community. And there's this one scene in the movie that, that really struck me, and I, I guess many of us, where the father and mother came in and they realized both their, their son and daughter is going to die, they're going to be executed. And they look at them and they say, we are so proud of you. And you can see that they've been raised in an environment where they reflected on what, it, what, what is required of them as believers of God. And even if it cost them their lives, then that is something that they should do. And there's a wonderful passage that I wanna re want us to reflect on, on in terms of what is the vocation of the church. And it comes across as a little bit strange, but we will unpack it in, in a short bit. It comes from First Peter Two from verse four to uh, to twelve. So this is First Peter two from verse four to twelve. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own, possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy beloved I urge you as resident aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you wanted to encounter God in the ancient world, you went to a temple. That is where heaven and earth overlaps. That is where you, you, you encounter God. That's where the priests are. That is where you have sacrifices, etc. And then Jesus makes a very startling claim. He says that our bodies are now the temple. Before that, he says that his body, him, in his body and through his death and resurrection, he fully embodied the temple. And we're not going to go into this in detail. I'm assuming a little bit of, of, of background information to make sense of it. This, he, he says that his body is the temple. And now, through out, pouring out the Holy Spirit, 
he says that our bodies now become these temples where God lives. So in other words, it's not the case anymore that you have to go to the temple to encounter God. It has now become our bodies. But here's the trick. A lot of Christians who I think are drinking from the Western individualistic water thinks that this is wonderful because this means that I can now just be a Christian. My body is a temple and God lives here and, and everything is okay. Nothing else is required of me. But the only place where your body, where, where the language is used that your body is a temple is in 1 Corinthians 6. That is the only place where it's used in the singular. And it's used in terms of sexual immorality. And I know at Varsity we used to have fun with this when... You know, you, uh, I don't know you, you, you'd be in like a, a social and there would be boys and girls and lights and music and you know what everybody's thinking. And then you would go up to a girl and just say, your body's a temple. Don't forget that. And I mean, they didn't find it funny either. But the, the, the point is that is the one place where, where you refer to the, our, our singular body as the temple. Most of the time in the New Testament, when Paul or Peter, when they are talking about our, our bodies being a temple, they are using it in the plural. Our bodies collectively make the temple. So it would be a better way, I think it would be, it would be slightly more accurate to say, you are a brick, not a temple. Maybe look at the person next to you and say, you are a brick. I, I mean, if you want. But the fact of the matter is that if you want to understand how, how this works, then it would say that we are part of the temple, but, 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 but we cannot necessarily be the place where God dwells in ourselves. It is something that happens when we come together. And, and here's the thing, if we can push this image just a little bit further, this structure that we are in now, our church, is, I think, reasonably safe. And some of you might have your concerns about the structural integrity, and that's why Daniel, for example, is always standing, so that he can be the first to run. <laughs> but, but you would become just slightly more worried if you see massive holes in the wall. A brick missing there, a brick missing there, a brick missing there. Now, that language is quite deliberate because the idea is that we should be so, we should be so involved in the life of the church. We should be so involved in each other. We should be so involved in the spiritual community that when this person is absent, then they, the, the whole movement loses its structural integrity. Does that make sense? That is the vision that is given to us. There's this one line that Tim Keller uses. He says, you, you must always pitch up for church meetings. Thomas missed it once, and Jesus pitched up. So, uh, so, so, so uh, look, the point is, it's not just about attending church. It's not just about consuming worship and consuming a sermon or, or, or whatever. It is being so built into the life of a community that when you are gone, for whatever reason, it is felt. We realize something is missing. That is the vision that Peter 
is is giving us something falls uh, something falls uh, things fall apart just a little bit in your absence what else happens at a temple let's assume that this spiritual community is a temple what else happens at a temple you bring sacrifice that is what's supposed to happen. Now, Peter uses the same language that we have of a temple in the Old Testament. He just, he just slightly reinterprets it and says, we don't have animal sacrifices, but as Christians, you must sacrifice yourself. You must give your life. You must, you must give your talents, your gifts to this temple. And only in the measure that we've got a community that is very interwoven, and only as much as we sacrifice our gifts in this temple, it becomes a temple. There is one other aspect that I think is, 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 is quite crucial, and that is, I'm not sure if you picked it up, but there's this constant reference to the cornerstone, the cornerstone, what's going on there. I don't know much about building. I'm not a builder or the son of a builder, but apparently you have a cornerstone. I'm not sure if it's still sort of the, the architectural way of doing it. But in the ancient world, you would have a cornerstone, and the builder would take great care to decide which cornerstone it would be. And then the rest of the building must align to that cornerstone, this wall and that wall. Otherwise, the structural integrity of the whole building is in question. So what they are saying is that you need to be aligned with the cornerstone and then with Peter's understanding now is we in this temple need to be aligned with Jesus Christ bring our gift collectively and then and then people will see ah this is truly where God is this is where heaven and earth overlap that is the vision that we have something else is this funny line in verse 11 that says we are supposed to be resident aliens oh, that sounds very sci-fi what's that about we're supposed to be resident aliens. It's another way of saying that we are very much in this world, but we are not of this world. We are resident in the sense that we are not tourists, okay? A lot of Christians treat earth as tourists. And then they say, ah, well, you know, who cares about environmentalism? Jesus is coming, man. Uh, you know, who cares about our carbon footprint? Jesus is coming. They, they don't care. They, they see themselves as, as tourists. Or they would just say, oh, you know what, I can't wait. I just want to go be with Jesus and escape this, you know, flesh and existence. That is not the biblical hope. We are not supposed to be tourists. We are supposed to be residents. But we are supposed to be aliens in the sense that we are here, but we are we, we don't put everything and our whole identity in here. Our source of power comes from somewhere else. Now, Suetonius was a Roman thinker, a Roman intellectual, and he wrote about Christians. And he said, these people are a different species. They, 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 I, I just cannot put them in a category. Now, today, if, if I want to say someone is a different species, let, let, maybe you, you want to know what, what kind of a guy is, is Luca. And I say, Luca, I mean, that guy... He's, he's just a different species. And I'm saying that the categories that we have does not exist. I cannot say introvert or extrovert. I cannot say nerd or jock. I cannot use these categories. So we have to go somewhere else. He's a different species. And this is what Suetonius and many other Roman intellectuals used when they tried to describe Christians in the first couple of centuries of the church. Why were they a different species? Because they really took this resident alien thing seriously. So for example... They were super, super stingy with their bodies. Sexually, they were very, very stingy. They had these whack progressive ideas that 
you must only have sex inside of marriage and with one person of the opposite sex. That was this crazy idea. And I think these, these Romans and, and Greeks, they were like, what, man, this is so, you guys are very open-minded. This is how we've, we've always done it. You know, it's dirty free for all. And, and, and now you guys are coming with these radical ideas about sexuality being so narrow. And then on top of that, they would be very promiscuous with their money. So sexually very stingy, very promiscuous with their money. They would, they would give it away. Um, and we see this a little bit in the, in the first chapters of, of Acts. Very, very generous with their money. What else? The early church was uh, probably, everybody took note of the fact that you've got different races and different classes coming to their gatherings. And it's very strange. In the ancient world, you didn't have especially the different classes coming together. But on the other hand, it is very narrow in the sense that they say Jesus is the only way to God. Now, the Romans, they didn't have you know, different classes and different races necessarily uh, coming together in the same space for their various cults. Every tribe had their own God. And they just said, look, you can do what you want. We just want you to worship Caesar as well. And you don't have to do it all the time, but you know, 12 July is a good date. Then you must, and, and I mean, we'll make it easy for you. Here's a statue. You can just look at him every now and then and, uh, and pray to him. And these Christians say no. So they are very dogmatic, very fundamentalist when it comes to, no, we, we only worship God and we're not going to compromise on that. But then they compromise on, no, everybody's welcome. Like we are not going to, we, we have no bounces at the door. Everybody is, is, is welcome into this community. And, and this annoyed the world because they were annoyed that people weren't, that these Christians weren't bowing to uh, two days Caesar, they actually called them atheists. Christians were called atheists in the beginning because why don't you acknowledge our gods? Everybody does it. Just do it. It's, it's nice for the Roman Empire. And, and they just wouldn't do it. But on the other hand, they really intrigued them as well because, wow, you guys really have a way of bringing all these people together. That is quite remarkable. Wow, people really love you guys. You, you seem to have a very strong sense of community. And Peter is calling us to this day to live the type of lives that annoy and intrigue people. <laughs> how annoying are you? But how intrigued are people by your life as well? But again, this is not supposed to be an individual question. So we are very quick to now try and figure out as an individual how annoying and how intriguing am I? How annoying and how intriguing are we as a community, as a temple? That is the question that we should ask. Now, friends, the early Christian church spread like a wildfire, and it, in, in a couple of years, it toppled the Roman Empire in, in many ways, you know, from, from inter internally, and it's a wonderful story. I mean, we can, I've, I've said this many times, but Julian the Apostate, he was the last pagan Roman emperor, and he sends this letter to his priests in modern-day Turkey, and then he says, the problem with these impious Galileans, that's how we refer to Christians, these annoying Galileans, is not only do they take good care of their own poor, but they take care of our poor as well. And, and we must now do it as well. And it was so funny and so forced because he now got the pagans to do charity as well. But nowhere, nowhere in their, in their letters, did you, in, in their holy scriptures, was there, Zeus really cares for the poor, you know, or... Hercules really has a heart for fragile women, you know, no, no, but now they have to do this, but it's not sort of entrenched in their faith, so it, it, it never worked, so Christianity spread like a wildfire, 
But as is the case with most fires, it cools down after a while. And it's very sad when it cools down. But as it becomes the norm, cultural Christianity sets in, people just go through the motions. And I want to pick up the story in, in the 18th century, in the 1700s in England. By now, the Church of England is very decadent and the aristocracy, you know, the upper class is just living the life. They will attend, Christ, they will attend mass or, and they will attend church, but it's, it's not really something that ha- they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And during that time, something interesting happens, and that is you've got a couple of guys who start to preach outside of the church context. They would go to the mines. They would go to the factories. These people like John Wesley, like Charles Wesley, like George Wycliffe. And, 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 and they would go out and they would preach a message that wasn't sort of wrapped up in just liturgical mumbo-jumbo. It was just to the heart. And you've got these beautiful stories of these hard-nosed coal factory workers and then they would stand outside because they didn't preach in the church. They would just preach underneath the tree. And then this coal miner, you would just find, you would see just a tear clearing the coal from his face as he is moved by the story of the gospel. Now, although that revival happened, the elite in England hated these people because they, they were called enthusiasts. <laughs> now, that's funny because if you know British people, you have to be sort of here all the time. So, hello, how are you doing? Very, very well, thank you. Are you annoyed? I am slightly annoyed, to be honest. You know, that's sort of the, the, the level that you have to go. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm, I'm overjoyed, really. Uh, and now you've got people who are just passionate about God, and they talk about the personal relationship, and it's just a little bit too much. They are enthusiasts, okay? And these Methodists are called enthusiasts. Now, today we've got the Methodist church denomination, but they were very much in the Church of England, but they had they introduced these methods in following Jesus. They had this very bizarre idea that you need to come together in small groups and read the Bible together. What? Today, cell groups comes from these people coming together and did this revival and, and praying and, and, and pushing people to, to have a personal relationship with God. So there's a guy, in the, a little boy in the north of England in a, in a city called Hull, and his name is Billy. And his parents, as was the case in uh, England back then, would send their child to, you know, well-to-do family members for their education, and they send him to Wimbledon, which should ring a bell, just outside of, 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 of London. And there he gets his education, but what his, his mother, his father was dead, and he was pretty much raised by his uncle and his mom. What they didn't know is that the people whom they've sent uh, Billy to are actually closet Methodists. They are, some, they are part of these evangelicals. And if you were part of the upper class, you didn't say it out loud, so it was a little bit undercover. And when they found out about it, they were absolutely scandalized. They drove down, or I, I think horsed down, and got Billy, and they just tried to get this nonsense out of him. He was not allowed to go to church for the rest of his schooling life because even though it was sort of a boring Anglican church somewhere in the north that they approved of, they were just worried that something might spark him and he would become Methodist again. He would become evangelical again. So they keep him away from church and eventually he, he makes his uncle and mom proud because he goes to Cambridge and he just lives this very decadent life. He gambles, he drinks, but he's a very charming chap in the sense that he's full of wit 
And I mean, if you, if you read a little bit about this history and you know the English, it, it really makes sense. It's just so important if you're witty and you need to drink. And he had this wonderful singing voice, Billy, so he would entertain people and uh, people just found him interesting. And there he meets a friend called William Pitt. They actually shared the same name. And him and William would go from Cambridge to London to the Houses of Parliament and they would watch the, the House of Commons debate and they found it very entertaining and they aspired to, to go into politics as well. At the age of 24, William Pitt became Prime Minister of England, to this day the youngest Prime Minister uh, ever, and uh, William Wilberforce, that is Billy, becomes his 2YC. As a matter of fact, one of the newspapers uh, had a, a line that says, all the world stare as this kingdom is given into children's care. Um, so, uh, so you've got William Pitt, the 24-year-old, and you've got William Wilberforce, the 24-year-old, and they are pretty much running the empire. But Wilberforce is not a changed man. I'm not sure where William Pitt is at. But at one point, Wilberforce wants to go down to the French Riviera for a retreat. Those of you guys who have ever been to England would know it actually sucks. And you have to leave the island to find sun and good weather. So they go down to the south of France to the French Riviera. But some, if you also know a little bit about 18th century transportation, it takes a while to get there. So they go by horse carriage. And he invites an old friend from Cambridge to accompany him. And there they can talk and gamble and just have discussions in the, in the cart. But he didn't do his homework. And this guy also became a closet Methodist, a closet evangelical. And he had a captive audience for several weeks because Wilberforce couldn't go anywhere. He's stuck in the cart with him. And by the end of that trip, Wilberforce realizes, my goodness, Jesus was who he claimed to be. This thing that I've forgotten about where by partying and womanizing and gambling and, and all of that, I, I am convicted of this reality. And obviously, I'm now out of um, my, my uncle and mother's house, and he embraces. And there he has this intense experience of, of God. He comes back, and he seeks the counsel of one John Newton. Not sure if that rings a bell. Those of you who ever sang Amazing Grace, you were singing John Newton's song. John Newton is an interesting guy. He was the owner, not the owner, he was a captain of a slave ship. And he became converted and he wrote Amazing Grace. So when we, re when we sing, my chains, my chains are gone, I've been set free, he is very much referring to the reality of him you know, taking these, catching these slaves or catching these people and turning them into slaves. And, uh, and that really haunted him. And he had this wonderful conversion experience. And then he went into full-time ministry and Wilberforce seeks counsel from me and says, you know what, I'm going to go into ministry now as well. I, I can't go on with in, in, the dirty worlds of in the dirty world of politics. And Newton says, no, please, please stay where you are. And what happens then I find very interesting He's a guy called John Thornton. He's a rich banker, and he lives just outside of London. At that stage, it would have been outside of London. Today, it's central London, called Clapham. Clapham, it's a little village, had about 2,000 people living there, and it was, I think, four kilometers away from the Houses of Parliament. And he invites this newly converted Wilberforce to move in with him. John Thornton decided that he's going to buy a house with, I think, 16 rooms, all right? So he... Uh, was rich, and he invites 
and William Wilberforce to come and live there. But not only there, uh, him, he invites a Zachary Macaulay to come and live with him, a Hannah Moore, Elizabeth Fry is now associated with them as well. And now you've got poets, you've got bankers, you've got lawyers, you've got priests, you've got politicians, and they are all living on the Clapham estate. And there they try to discern what is the will of God? What is the will of God? And they do Bible study together. They get up very early in the morning. I mean, don't feel overly sorry for them. I mean, they still lived it up. It was a very, very nice estate. Uh, but they, 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 they raise early in the morning, and they pray, and they fast, and they, do, uh, they, they, they fellowship together in the same church. And, and as they are listening, and as these group of believers come together, as these living stones come together, the most amazing thing happens. So they realize, now this might sound as you know, uh, uh, common sense to us, but it wasn't. It wasn't 300, 400 years ago. They realize that there are so many aspects of society that's at odds with the gospel that they need to address this very quickly. The one thing that happened in 18th century England that was taken for granted is child labor. So you had lots of orphans in a place like London, and these orphans were very good at getting into small parts of a factory, clean chimneys, clean pipes, and the, 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 the owners thought that they were very benevolent because we are helping these kids, we're keeping them off the street, we are employing them, but they employed them for 12-hour shifts, and a five- or a six-year-old child would work a 12-hour shift uh, very often. And these, th this group of people who came together just decided, this is not on. You had... At that stage, 25% of, no, of all women in London were prostitutes, 25%. They said, this is, this is just surely not, not on. The prisons were overflowing. The most minor infraction, you would steal bread and you would get five or 10 years in prison. And they just decided it's not okay. So they got to work. The first, one of the first things that they established was the Society for Fighting Animal Cruelty. If you want to know where the SPCA comes from, comes from these people who were collectively referred to as the Clapham sect. Why were they referred to as the Clapham sect? Because the media and a lot of the, you know, the, the British elite hated these people, so they called them these fundamentalists, these Bible-bashing thumpers who lived there in Clapham. So almost every day in the newspaper, there would be something about, just be careful of not becoming like the Clapham sect, the holy club. So they, all sorts of derogatory language came their way. And one of the first things that the Clapham sect does is they start a society to fight animal cruelty. They were especially concerned about the overuse of horses. Second thing that they do is they introduce anti-child labor law. For the first time in England, perhaps in history, you've got anti-child labor law being introduced. What they also realize is that you've got so many orphans now, what do you do with these orphans? Because now they don't have a job. <laughs> I mean, God forbid, the five-year-old doesn't have a job. And this John Thornton, this, this rich banker, decides to start this apprenticeship program where they get schooling. And remember, you didn't have universal schooling today. We take that for granted. It wasn't that, uh, the case. So he gives them training so that those who want to can eventually become sailors and work on the ships. The majority of adult English men back then worked on ships. They had a massive empire. They had a small island. Basically, everybody worked on boats. And he 
they started that. They also started a union for these sailors because uh, they would go on a voyage and uh, a quarter of them wouldn't return and nobody was held accountable for the lives of these sailors. So they started a union for these sailors. They had this radical, radical idea that perhaps it is a good, it, perhaps it's a good idea to split the women and men when they go into jail. In other words, let's have a male jail and let's have a female jail. Before that, they were all just thrown into the same jail. Imagine the amount of rape that took place in, a, in, 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 in that horrid, horrid situation. So especially someone like Elizabeth Fry championed this and said, we need to split these jails. We cannot have, we, we, we cannot have unisex uh, jails. I don't care how woke it is. And, and then because the, jail, the, the prisons were just over... Um, were just bursting at the seams because they would just get people in there for minor infractions. They introduced laws and policies, and in four months they were able to to release 15,000 people from, from jail, from prison, because they stole bread or they stole an apple or something stupid like that. So they, they introduced laws to get the prisons empty. They also introduced laws to uh, for people to keep the Sabbath, again, to keep the Lord's Day holy. Now, if you come from my background, then you don't have a great relationship with a legalistic Sunday. So you know, all that, oh man, the shops are closed, you're not allowed to watch TV, it's very boring, I don't, I, that, that cannot be nice. And maybe, maybe they were also on the legalistic side. But one thing that we cannot take away from them is the fact that in those days you didn't have weekends, so that was the one day in which the factories closed down and the mines closed down, so these people would actually have a day off, and they would produce tracts and books, and they would have public lectures where they would say, um, fathers must spend time with their children on the Sabbath. What? Fathers must spend time with their children on the Sabbath? You're saying that I must dedicate one day of the week to my children? That is insane. They introduced these ideas and laws. Something else that they did is, at that stage, probably the biggest company in the world was the East India Company. These were the people who controlled the trade route uh, you know, to, the, to the Indies, and they would go past, past Cape Point. At one stage, they realized that there were Dutch people there, so they decided, you guys can go further inland. And that's actually where most of the Afrikaners come from. We ran away from the English because they made a little station. They put a little station there. And then Wilberforce and friends started to really push to put missionaries on the boats, to put missionaries in the various colonies of, of, of the British Empire. Now today, when you think of missionaries and colonialism, you immediately think of that Desmond Tutu quote that says, when the missionaries came, they had the Bible, and then they taught us to pray, and when we closed our eyes, they had the land, and we had the Bible. And we, we just think, oh yeah, those evil missionaries and, and what they did in being in bed with the colonial powers. Just know this, that the East India Company fought this thing more than anything. They didn't want missionaries on their ships. They didn't want that. They didn't want missionaries in India. Why? Why? Because the, the, the people in control of East India Company, the owners, knew that if you give people a Bible and you teach them to read, they are going to read that one of the most, uh, the, the, the main theme in the Old Testament is God releasing people from slavery. Okay, that's not good for business. Or you're going to teach them about the fact that everybody's equal in the sight of God. That is not good for business. 
They realize that if we put the Bible in their hands, then they are going to use that very Bible against us, which is exactly what happened. Most of the liberation movements in the British Empire eventually came from people quoting the Bible back to the people who brought them the Bible. They realized we need to keep the missionaries away from the colonies. They couldn't, and eventually the Clapham sect succeeded in putting people missionaries there and to this day some of the biggest missionary organizations in the world can find their origin in the Clapham sect and then probably their biggest contribution and that's what they are mostly known for and I didn't want to start with that because I think it overshadows some of their other amazing work that they've done is the fact that they almost single-handedly fought against slavery in England and after decades and decades of struggle, they eventually succeeded. At first, in 1807, they succeeded to make the slave trade illegal, and only, I think, in 1833, they succeeded in, in um, the abolition of slavery as a practice. Three days later, Wilberforce died. That was his life goal, to abolish slavery. And he got the news, and three days later, he went to be with the Lord. Here's the thing, friends. There's a small Clapham, church in Clapham with a, yeah, influential people coming together, but some of them were also not super influential. Teachers, pastors, politicians, bankers, lawyers, etc. They prayed together, they fasted together, and they used all their resources in terms of books, in terms of tracts. I know, and I know we now find it annoying when somebody gives you a flyer with their ideas, they're trying to sell you something. These were some of the first people to run political campaigns, and they would give you a flyer with the, what they want, and then they would make public speeches, and people would hate that, but they were lobbying for all of these things to try and change society. That's where uh, the way in which we think of modern-day political lobbying, it stems from the, the Clapham sect. They, they did all these things, but it came at a massive price. They had massive opposition. You can imagine that at that stage, the slavery industry is one of the biggest industries in the world. People are making loads of money. They're not going to just let, let go of that um, uh, easily. And they received so many death threats. The amount of ridicule that this bunch of fundamentalist wackheads received in the media was immense. But they were able to withstand that because they had such clear, they had such a clear understanding of their vocation, such a clear understanding of what it is that God has called them individually and as a group to do. William Wilberforce had a couple of mental breakdowns, but these people, just bit by bit, through missionaries, through all of the various activities, introduced these laws and succeeded to a large extent. Most of them saw the success of these, these, these policies that they tried to change within their lifetime. You know what's remarkable? Those of you who know a little bit about history, George IV, he was the king during that time, and he was known to have had more than 7,000 different sexual encounters with different men and women. He was a, a walking virus. And, and he couldn't care less about, about England and he had all of these decadent ministers and high society, and they would party and gamble, and uh, it, it would just be a horrible, horrible mess. And at, during the same time, the French, just across the pond, were getting rid of their aristocracy, who didn't take their needs seriously. And many historians ask the question, how did England survive a revolution? 
a revolution similar to the French Revolution. And a lot of them come to the conclusion they had the Clapham sect. The Clapham sect took care of the poor, changed the course of this decadent society so they didn't run the same, they didn't get, uh, have the same fate as the French. Just imagine that. They, they effectively, and I mean, they did this from a place of integrity, but they stopped a very bloody revolution through their actions. Friends, I'm, I'm not trying to say that we need to all become a, a William Wilberforce or any of the other members of the Clapham sect because I, I think sometimes when, when one looks at these people's lives, you become a little bit despondent because you think, oh man, I'm just going back to an Excel spreadsheet. These people, you know, reformed prisons and ended slavery and, you know, changed the world and I'm just, I don't know, doing human resources or, 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 or something like that. But that would be to over-individualize the question again. I think what we need to know is that these people, they didn't start with their vocation. They started with scripture. And they asked the question, how can I be a living stone? If this is what Peter and the gospel calls me to do, we come together and we are living stones. And that is how people will see that is where God is busy. I think that is the question that we need to start with. The other thing that we need to know is that it wasn't necessarily a Wilberforce that changed society by himself. The only reason why we had a Wilberforce is because he was part of a community, a community of believers who prayed and fasted and discerned the will of God. And that's where we should start. I think we need to take what we have here super, super seriously. They sacrificed a lot. They came together, these living stones, they sacrificed, but more importantly, they ensured that they are aligned with the cornerstone. And it wasn't as if they were this mega church. They were a small group of believers who came together. And they asked God the question, what do you want from us collectively? What do you want from us individually? And this is not supposed to make us despondent, but it is supposed to inspire us. Because wouldn't it be wonderful if we, as a small community, people can look in and they can say, oh man, that really annoys me, what they say there, and, and, and I find that slightly offensive. But man, oh man, you can see the fruit of their lives. You can see the fruit of this community. That is something worth pursuing. I see just a little bit of God in this temple when these people come together. I want us to pray. And as we pray, let's just quickly reflect uh, with, with a moment of silence on, on some of these questions. So if you can just close your eyes. Maybe ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be a what does it mean to be a living stone? Also ponder the question what does it look like for, for you now to be a resident alien? Not to be so spiritually aloof and 
distant from this world's issues, but to be here, but not from here. And then what would it look like if you align yourself to the cornerstone? In which way do you think you are not aligned with Jesus Christ right now? Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the remarkable lives of these people who really try to follow you. We thank you for their impact, but more importantly, Lord, we thank you for this invitation that we have to follow you today. We thank you for, we thank you for the invitation to be part of something bigger, to come into the life of a community and to know that what we do is not insignificant. If we do this right, we are supposed to be a living stone, a contributor, sacrificing, giving, bringing our gifts to the altar. Lord, I pray that we will do that, that we would grow into that as a community. Lord Jesus, we, we also pray that, that we will be able to align our lives with you. You are the stone that the builders rejected. And therefore, if we align our lives with you, we can expect rejection. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that this would be something that we discern individually and collectively, how to follow you, how to align our lives with you. It is our prayer, Lord Jesus, that people would be able to look into this community and really see something of you, see a little bit of heaven and earth overlapping here in, in this strange building and wherever we are busy with your work. Lord Jesus, we, we pray all of these things and we reflect on all of these things, not to be despondent, not to feel like we are failures compared to these people, but because we are also just trying to follow you in our lives in our little world, in our little context. And we are not seeking grandeur. We don't have delusions of grandeur, but we do, however, want to seek you and find you, Lord, and find out your will for our lives individually and as a community. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. Friends, before we go over to to the... Uh, to, to, to question and response and uh, comments, I I want us to I want to give you the opportunity to 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 take part in communion. And because it is so easy for us to forget this reality, to not align our lives with God, to just get caught up and in, 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 in go through the motions, to just be caught up in cultural Christianity or just in culture at large. God has given us this wonderful gift that reminds us of this fundamental reality. It is a reminder to be aligned with him again. So please take the bread, don't, don't use it just yet, and, and take the cup, and then we will introduce communion in a second.
Friends, if we live this life that we are invited to this, this evening, it will cost us something. It will be a sacrifice. And that is why we introduce communion with these words, the words of Jesus. This is my body broken for you. Eat and remember. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, This is my blood poured out for you. Drink and remember. Lord Jesus, may we align our lives with your glorious reality. May we be able to take this vocation of the temple seriously, but only in as much as we realize that you are the temple, Lord Jesus, and you, you called us into existence. And help us to bring our sacrifices here, Lord. And the only way in which that is sustainable is in the knowledge of your sacrifice, your body, your blood, the cross. May that shape our community. May that shape our service to the world.